welcome to Between the Before and After, a podcast about the stories that shape us. I'm your host, Coach John McLernan, and each episode, I bring you an inspiring guest with a moving story that shines a light on the power of the human spirit. Before we dive in, I want to let you know about two very important things. Number one, the stories shared here are often gritty, raw, and vulnerable, and very likely will include speaking about sensitive topics suited for a mature audience. Number two, this podcast is also broadcast live on YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. So on whatever platform you follow myself or Freedom Nutrition Coaching, you have the opportunity to participate in this discussion. You can comment on the live stream, and we encourage your participation both by commenting and asking questions. And so this podcast is about exploring the stories that take place between the before and after photos, not just in the realm of weight loss, but in all areas of life. So let's dive in. All right. So today's podcast and interview, I have uh, a number of firsts that I'm ticking off on my list of guests that I interview uh, with Christine Handy here. Uh, I have interviewed a model before, but I haven't interviewed a best-selling author, and I haven't yet interviewed a cancer survivor. Uh, I think you also said humanitarian. Um, you're also a master's Harvard student and uh, a mother of two. So a number of those things we haven't done before. So this is exciting. Welcome to the show, Christine. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So to to kind of kick things off, I like to I like to give people a chance to get to know a little bit about you. I have um, a deck here of 150 random questions uh, in, lumped into six categories. So if you want to choose a number between one and six, I'm going to pick out a random question for you to answer here. Uh, two. Two. All right. So the category you've chosen here is life. Oh my gosh. Oh boy. <laughs> describe. Oh, describe gosh. your. Like this, like this is uh, maybe appropriate. I don't know. Describe your first experience dealing with death. Oh my gosh, there's a yes. heavy question. Yeah, very fitting. How funny! Yeah, I picked that number. Um, <laughs> well, I my, I guess my closest encounter with death was with myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I've had a few encounters with death, and one was on an operating table when I was 35 years old, having a colon resection. And I almost bled to death on the table because the doctor made a, an error. And then mm -hmm. I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2012 and went through enough, enough chemotherapy to put me in a grave for sure. <laughs> so wow. I've had some, yeah. yeah, I've said, yeah, interesting question. Yeah. And so you've had a heck of a life experience to get to the point where you're at and kind of what we like to talk about here is between the before and after because if people see you now what right. they see is like you know they see a model they see a published author um i believe there's a fictional um what's yes. the word of uh a, a, a movie about your life essentially i'm like correct and, and uh so they see all these different things you're you know you're a humanitarian you've accomplished quite a lot you know uh, you're someone who has just a wealth of self-confidence and, you know, a lot of, a lot of energy to share with people. So they see that that's the after photo, you know, um, right. but th this is kind of about the stories kind of between, uh, between the before and after. So, you know, you mentioned that uh, starting at about age 11, you found yourself very dependent on external value. And yes. I wonder what, what runs, or what your meaning when you say something like that? Well, I started modeling when I was 11 and I was okay. very dependent. And I was very dependent on what I look like, not just for my profession, but that was the reinforcement was coming from that. Like I'd be at, you know, parties with my parents and they heard their friends would come up and go, oh, your daughter's so pretty. You know, it mm -hmm. wasn't always, it wasn't anything about anything inside. It was always external. And so that's what I became dependent on. And that's what I thought was my value in this world. 
And, yeah. and so that, that kind of multiplied over the course of time, right? I made decisions based on the external because that's what I thought was my worth. Yeah, which is quite interesting because I think about how that, that shapes us moving into adulthood. You know, I, I just have an eight-month-old yeah. um, son right now, and uh, I, I'm fascinated with how the brain develops. And uh, so I'm very keenly aware of, of even how I communicate with him already, you know, because I'm like, what am I setting him up uh, to, to be like? And, you know, I don't, I don't think it's that necessarily people do this deliberately. I mean, human beings yeah. have two eyeballs. We're visual creatures. We're drawn to things that are attractive, you know, and so on. But th there can be a lot of damage done when, when we essentially uh, assign someone uh, value based on entirely their physical appearance, you know. And so how did that, how did that set you up kind of through, through your teen years? Well, I think, I mean, I think the world that we live in is set up to give accolades out for what you look like. I mean, especially in the more maybe now than ever, Yeah, yeah. even, even in a diverse culture that we're trying to attain and, and become, it still is set up on external visuals because of social media and the prettier the picture, the more likes and comments and things like that. And so we're not going in the right direction, in my opinion. Now, I've gone from being, you know, at the height of my career, I was in Barcelona modeling for Elite Worldwide in, in living in the modeling agency, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I went from that to being diagnosed with cancer and having multiple illnesses and, and being scarred up. And, and having scars was like the, you know, the worst thing that could happen to me, you know, as a model. You know, you couldn't even have a blemish without them getting mad at you. We had to be weighed in, you know, your hair, if it was the wrong length or the wrong color, they would send you home. And so you have all this pressure to be perfect in a, in a very imperfect world. And we're never, no one of us are perfect. So you're trying to attain this perfection and then you add multiple illnesses to it and scars and you go, okay, well, I have no value. Well, that means I have no worth. That means my self-esteem is shattered. Now, it's so easy for me to look back on this now and see of course, it's, yeah. so, it's so obvious. And so when I was diagnosed with cancer and I lost this facade, everything, like what I what I thought I was worth and what I thought society thought I was worth, then I had to really look inside and go, well, who is this person? Who am I? And it was really scary for me. And it took me quite a while to figure it out. And I was also doing it at a time where I was very ill and, face, being, and facing death. Absolutely, so, yeah. That was quite a that was quite a rocky road, but but not only looking back have I learned so many values and about who I am, and also about what the world is all about. But I've also been able to share that. I, I feel like I'm like a teacher now to help yeah, other people yeah. and go. You got to figure out what you're rooted in. You know, if it's rooted Absolutely. in this world, it can be taken like so easily. Absolutely, and so. You know, you spent a number of years in, in the modeling world, and I just want to uh, prod in, or poke into that just a little bit um, because there's a lot. I, I imagine there's still a lot of glamour nowadays. I think there is a little bit of backlash against it. Um, yeah. How how much weight that backlash actually carries, it's hard to say. Um, but you know, there's a lot. We, we I think we're we're taught to perceive it as like very this very glamorous world where life is incredible and amazing and so on. Um, what's it really like uh, being on the inside of that experience? It's very transactional. And what I mean by that is, you know, photographers or modeling agencies would say to you, well, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Meaning like a photographer would say, well, if you do this photo shoot for me to get me some pictures, I'll get you with this client. And okay. so it was very, very transactional. And, you know, I worked in Europe, I worked in the United States and it was all kind of the same, but it was also very, um, it was very, you know, there's a lot of comparison 
amongst models, amongst agencies, amongst photographers. And so when you're driven by comparison, you're driven to fail for sure. Yeah. Because, because if your measure is up against somebody else that's younger and more beautiful and thinner and whatever, then you're constantly criticizing yourself and your self-esteem is going to be destroyed. And so, you know, but I didn't realize that at the time. And so I thought comparison was just part of life and that I was supposed to do that or supposed to accept that. Yeah, it's it's a vicious game because you're constantly shooting for for a moving target, you know, and um, I, I wonder, you know, I think it's actually probably no secret that it sets people up for a very disordered relationship with their body, with food, um, and, and just yes. every sort of human interaction, every relationship you develop, you have to be wondering, like, is this about who I am as a person? Or is this about, you know, what can they get from me? Of course. Yeah, well, that's what I thought. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that, that makes it that makes it incredibly messy. And so, uh, you said uh, at, at 35, you, you became sick. And do you think that there was some connection to becoming sick and the time that you spent modeling? Because, you know, and this is a bit of a roundabout question, because I'm, I'm kind of thinking like, you know, there's a connection between our emotional health and our physical health as well. And yeah. do you think that like the time that you spent, and, and I understand you just still do some modeling. And so, and, I and, <laughs> and I'm not trying to entirely no, um, no, denigrate of the world not. of modeling. Of course, there, there's yeah. value in it. But do you think that the time that you spent in this culture that can be really problematic and even toxic in some ways um, would have contributed to what happened with your health crises? Yeah, for sure. I mean, my, I think my colon um, issue when I was 35 was directly related to eating disorders from being a model. Okay. Now, I don't think that you have to have an eating disorder to be a model. I know a lot of very healthy models. I'm a model still. In fact, I'm walking in New York Fashion Week in the spring, and I, I have a healthy body. I have a healthy mentality now, but I didn't then. And I'm not saying that the industry forced me to be unhealthy. I did that. Mm -hmm. I can't blame them. You know, I'm not, this is not a blame. Um, I take, I take responsibility for it. I was trying to live up to a measure that was unattainable. Um, and so I don't think that modeling in general, it's not a bad industry. In fact, it's given me great joy, but you have to be, you have to have a really solid self-esteem in order to get into that industry. And I think a lot of young women don't have a solid self-esteem. Absolutely. And and <clears throat> I think there's an irony here because in one sense, uh, models may be glamorized and idolized and held up as like this ideal of perfection. And it, was there ever a time that you kind of sit back and you go, oh my gosh, like if someone meets me in person, they're going to be disappointed when they figure out that I'm human and imperfect and flawed? Yes. I still, I mean, to some degree, and I, I, I think that goes back as well to self-esteem. And I think yeah. to some degree, I think we all have that a little bit. And I, it's funny that you say that about um, the modeling industry though, because I have friends who were modeling with me when I was 18, 19, 20, and I see them now and they look so different and they've kind of just kind of let them, let their bodies just do what they were meant to do. And a lot of them are, you know, much, they look much different and they're happy. So that's really good. It is. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know that we're ever going to entirely get away from, or necessarily that we should get away from valuing physical beauty in one sense, because I mean, there, there is a certain like sort of basic biological primal element to our attraction to beauty sure. and to, to try to pretend that we can erase that entirely is, well, I think it, it's just a fallacy that's never going to come to come to fruition. Um, but on the other hand, I think there's this rising sort of consciousness and awareness that we need to, we need to look at this differently. There needs to be uh, something different in terms of how we approach this. So maybe we, you know, yes, we still assign some value to this, but to in- encourage obviously like inner work and inner development as well. And 
for you, this was yes. kind of forced. This, uh, I don't want to say, well, I would say it was kind of forced. It, your hand was forced Very. in this. Of course. Yeah. No, it wasn't intentional. <laughs> yeah. And, and nobody sets out going, well, you know, I'd like to become an inspiring cancer survivor. Um, it, it, you know, that, that wasn't what, you know, and, and you look back and, uh, am I right? Are you, are you 50 this year or no. you have, uh, yeah. yeah, 51. Mm-hmm. 51. Okay. And yeah. so, so you look back over, over the last, you know, four, 40, 40 odd years, years, 40 yeah, years modeling. of your 40 life. 40 years modeling. Yeah. Yeah. And you go, oh my gosh, I like, I never expected that I was going to find myself here. I definitely didn't. And now I'm modeling con- with a concave chest because yeah. even even after I had breast cancer, I had implants and I you know lived like that for a while. And then in 2020, summer of 2020, when the whole world was shutting down over COVID, I was in the hospital with a MRSA infection for many weeks and my chest cavity, my implants were excavated. So now mm-hmm. I'm modeling with a concave chest. So it's yeah. gone completely different. And and the reason I think that I'm able to be 51 and modeling with a concave chest is because our world is, they want stories. They want humans, yes. you know, they want to be inspired <clears throat> in the modeling industry, yeah, yeah. even in the modeling industry, which I think is a, is a huge win. Um, and so I'm even walking in New York fashion week and I think that's great. And the reason that I want to model with a concave chest and 51 is to show other people that we can do this, you know, collectively without comparison and without, you know, this ideal or this perfection that really shouldn't exist. So that's what I'm, that's why I still model. Absolutely. And, and there's something to be said for who, who we become as a person, because somebody can have a very physically attractive exterior and be hollow or just be a horrible person on the inside. And it doesn't take yeah. very long before, because let's say, um, for example, I, I think what those maybe in the world of Hollywood and, and things like that, and, and something similar sort of happens there, right? These people, we see them as characters in movies and things like that. And we, we believe them to be a certain person Then we wonder why do their relationships fail? Why, why the, you know, the seemingly like super rich, super famous, idolized glamour couple and this relationship fails. And, you know, I'd be curious what your thoughts are on this. But I mean, I think this is really connected to a lack of development as a human being. And and I don't know how well we're really wired to handle being put on a pedestal. Well, I have a couple comments. First, I think there were steps along the way that I missed, right? Because I was so focused on the external that I didn't, I wasn't nurturing the inside. And and I I think as a young woman, I wasn't getting that feedback as well. And that was hurting me. And so, and I think that we put these, uh, going back to your question, I think that we put these famous people because they have money, because they're beautiful, because they have access, how could they have a failed relationship? But the problem yeah. is none of those things matter. Like the money yeah. doesn't matter. The, the external doesn't matter. The access doesn't matter. It's what's inside. And so they can have a failed relationship just like us because the inside's the same. Like we all believe the same color. Yeah. And I think there's this idea that uh, human beings have this tendency to project our happiness into the future, some arbitrary point in the future. When I have this or when I am this, I will then be happy. And that's a losing game because you're always, if that's your mindset, no matter where you get to, you're going to be projecting your happiness into the future because that's that's the paradigm that you're, you're looking from. And so how, how do people, in, in your eyes, how do people start to find happiness exactly as they are in their present sort of flawed, growing, developing human condition. When I live in chronic pain, so I have, you know, my situation is different to get through that chronic pain. I have to really, I have to develop a different muscle. And for me, I developed the muscle of faith. And so I have faith in who I am. I have faith in a God who I serve. Mm -hmm. And so 
and my measure is built on my faith and my measure is also, you know, accountable to God. And so I'm not, my measure isn't with how I look. My measure isn't with how I feel. My measure isn't with what modeling job I get, which it used to be. My measure isn't, oh, I'm a best-selling author. Oh, I've done this interview. Oh, I, my life story was just on radio stations all around the country. Those are nice. That's mm-hmm. flattery, but that's not my measure of success. My measure is inside. My measure is my faith and how I'm serving. Absolutely. Yeah. And so just let's take a step back here. You said you got sick at around age 35 with a colon illness, but this wasn't cancer? Is no, that correct? Uh-uh. No, I had a colon resection at 35. What is a colon resection? <laughs> It's a very good question. I had no idea until I was in surgery having a colon resection what a colon resection was. Um, it basically, they take out a portion of your colon and they, they resect it. They cut part of it out and then they stitch it back together. And so they took about 28 inches out of my colon when I was 35 years old. And that's when I almost bled to death on the table. That was my first brush with death. 28 inches. And like, how long is the colon? Maybe six. We have inches? a lot. Yeah. No, I'm, my colon is actually fine now. Yeah. Um, after they did that, my life was actually, I felt much better, but well, we course, have a yeah. lot of colon. So 28 inches sounds like a, I think it was a third of my colon that they took out. A third, Okay. Yeah. So I, I was, I was slightly underestimating. Yeah. And so they, they take out a third, a third of your colon. What tipped you off? Like that something needs to get looked at or what was happening that led to this point where it's like something is wrong here. So sometimes when women have, they carry, like I was, I had two children, so I was carrying mm-hmm. kind of a heavy load on my front and yep. that that can put a lot of pressure on your colon and it can elongate your colon. And so what, what happened to me is because I was very, very thin and I had this bump, right. When I was pregnant, it put pressure on my colon and my colon elongated. And then after I was pregnant, my colon twisted because it was too long. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so it became an emergency situation for me and they went in, they untwisted it, but they cut out that part that was twisted and all and in the length and it was too long. So that's why they took it out. Right. Right. That's interesting. And so I guess the muscle become too thin to be able to to function effectively because the colon is, is smooth muscle. So Right. Yeah, you know a lot. <laughs> well, it is the world that I work in. But um and so obviously I, I gather you were probably out when you nearly nearly um bled oh, to death yes. on the table. Like oh, you yes. find you find out after after the fact. Oh, you of had course. N- yeah. Right. No, well here's the here's the bump though. So I go into the surgery and, and I show the surgeon, I, you know, I'm going into surgery. I was like, listen, I'm a model. Here's my comp card. Like this is lingerie. This is, you know, a bathing suit. And he was like, okay, you know, we're doing it orthoscopically. Shouldn't have many scars. And I'm like, okay, okay, whatever. And so I come out of surgery and I have a port in my neck and a blood bag above my head and I'm in the recovery room and I'm in grotesque pain. I mean, grotesque yeah. pain. And there was a nurse sitting next to me and I said, you know, shaking like uncontrollably because the pain was so intense. I said to her, what happened? And she said, your doctor will be in here soon. And I took my hand and I put it on my abdomen. And I'm going to guess and say I probably had 500 stitches and staples. He he nicked a vein in my pelvis and he couldn't find the source of it. And so trying to plug the, the blood, but he couldn't find the source but he let it bleed for too long. And so in an emergency, he had to open me wide from hip to hip and he had to cut through everything, cut through muscle. There was no time to kind of move things around to do it pretty. And so I woke up, not only did I have a port in my neck, which I didn't even know what a port was right? in a blood bag because I was having a blood transfusion. And then I, I reached down and I feel all these staples and scars. And I was like, 
okay, what just happened? Now the pain was the most important thing at the time, but when that subsided, I was like, well, what's going to happen now to my model career? Cause I was like JC Penney's lingerie model, like mm-hmm. in the, yeah. in the Sunday paper. If you opened up a Sunday paper in the lingerie section of JC Penney, that was me. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you're, you're in incredible pain physically, Terrible. but you're, you're part of you is also calculating or, or, or reflecting on like, uh oh, this the way this that I make job. my right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so prior to this point, so from from eleven to thirty five, did you do anything other than modeling, or was modeling like how you made your income? It was your full time. This is what you did. Full time, yeah. I mean, I was a mother too. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. no, that was it. Yeah, I mean, being a mother is a rather important job as well. Oh yeah, <laughs> the most important job. But yes, no, but as far as income, yes, that was my yeah. only job. Yeah, yeah. So now now you're finding yourself wondering. In incredible pain and wondering, like, is everything over? Like, did that start, did yeah. those thoughts kind of start running through your head? Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I was out of work for a few years. I mean, it was a while before I was able to go back to work. Yeah. Yeah. And how, how did that affect then? Because at this point here, I don't know where you are kind of in your personal development journey, but having that taken away from you, how did that affect I, you? I wasn't very long. I wasn't very ahead in my personal journey yet. I <laughs> I was still kind of back there where I was like, okay, I'm nothing without what I look like. So I got to make sure I look better. I have to hurry up and get better. You know, that was my mentality. But I kind of knew at that moment that there was something kind of deeper that was kind of trying to push itself out from inside going, this might not be the only thing that you're worth in this life. But I kept stuffing that down. And right. going, no, 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 I'm just going to fill that space with modeling or materialism or, you know, yeah. compliments or favor. I don't know. You know, I mean, I was just, I was always looking for that because that's what I thought was my value. Yeah, that's interesting. Without, would it be fair to say that you, there was a degree of like, you were almost emotionally stunted? I don't, I, I, that sounds like a really blunt. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I guess I only hesitate because I'm like, it sounds like a really blunt term to put it that way. But because like your whole, maybe True. from the time you're 11, you have adults sort of like dictating what, you know, what you look like, what your yeah. life look and so on, that, that you really missed out on some valuable, uh, I guess, stages of, of emotional development. Well, and I wasn't doing any introspection ever. You right. know, it was that, and that was missing. Yeah. You mentioned you, you said, oh, I wasn't nurturing the, the inside. Yeah. I didn't even know who I was. <laughs> I, I really kinda- didn't. Yeah. Is that kind of a scary realization to come to? Well, when I was diagnosed with cancer, that was the scariest realization because I was getting, I was faced with, well, I had cancer and I was not sure I was going to make it through. And I thought, wow, I may die of cancer. And I never even knew who I was. I never even knew what I was meant to do. And I've lived this very plastic self-serving life and I did nothing. I mean, I, of course I did stuff for people, but you know, I felt like I had wasted my life. And it was very humbling. And I, I decided that ultimately I decided that I was going to forget about the outcome of cancer. I was going to focus on every day. And if I could show bravery and courage every single day when I was going through this, then I was doing something for somebody, right? I was showing courage to my children. I was showing, showing bravery to my friends. And that's when I started to kind of multiply that kind of mentality. And then I started to do the introspection of who I was inside And I said to myself, I'm here to serve and I'm here to use this story of pain and long suffering. And I'm going to teach you what not to do. So you don't have to go through what I went through. That became kind of my mission. And so, but from 35, you had the surgery, 41, you're, you're diagnosed with cancer. Sort of 
what, uh, just quickly to fill in the gap there, when did you kind of return to to modeling, and what was it like? Um, you know, now that you have this like this scar, you know, or these scars and whatnot. Well, fortunately, I scar really, really well. And so the scar dulled and I didn't have any bumps or anything. And so I went back to modeling a couple years after that surgery and things kind of went back to normal. You know, I went back into that materialism and tried to fill myself up with shopping. And <laughs> Right, yeah. But the problem was it never worked. I tried really right. hard. <laughs> but that that was that was like a pattern that had been established in your brain. There was this whole paradigm that had been established, and so yeah. w- once something's so so deeply wired into your brain, in a sense, um, it's yes. very natural to sort of fall back into that rut because that's our brain's that was your brain's sort of default operating pattern, in a sense. Um, was Even there anything that healthy, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the the crazy thing about our brains is like we we yeah. develop the, the, our sense of identity and then we act in congruence with our sense of identity, and we right. often do things that logically we look at and we go, well, why do I do this? This doesn't really make sense. But from the perspective of your brain that's wired into this sense of identity, it makes perfect sense because your brain is trying to maintain a sense of like homeostasis. This is who I am, and so my actions are in congruence with that. Was there anything that tipped you off? So if we move into the cancer part of your story, which is obviously pretty major. Was there anything that tipped you off that you were unwell or was it just a routine screening that you go, "Uh oh, we found something here? I actually felt a lump and I had, you know, you don't, oh, I, I didn't have any family history of cancer and I had never imagined, could ever imagine that I would have breast cancer. It wasn't something I was worried about, even at like 80. I wasn't even worried yeah. about it then, but if, I wasn't worried about it going forward. And so I actually felt a lump. And uh, went to, well, I was diagnosed five days later with an aggressive form of breast cancer. So if I had not yeah. felt it, I don't know, things would have got even worse. <laughs> yeah. And and that's, in a sense, I guess that's a testament to to knowing your body and, and, and looking at it, you know, checking yourself. Because once a year medical screening, like a lot can happen over a 12-month span. Yeah, I wasn't really looking for a lump. I fortunately it was at the top of my skin and I was very lucky that I was able to feel it. I wasn't even doing a self-examination. So now I'm a big I'm a big promoter of self-examinations because we as individuals can find lumps so easily, m- much easier. Yes. And so, yeah. yeah. So you get all of a sudden this this diagnosis that you have cancer. Yeah. What 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 runs through your head in that moment? panic. Yeah. Panic. Like I had young kids, you know, I wanted to be their mother and I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to be, somebody else is going to get the privilege of raising these children. I was angry, you know, fear translates into anger. And so I was, I was very fearful and very angry and I was very confused about how to ask for help because I was taught to be, you know, this very independent, tough woman who, you know, can fend for herself. Yeah. But in that in that in that scenario, I wasn't able to take care of myself, and I certainly wasn't able to take care of my children, and so I needed to ask for help. But I was ashamed by asking for help, and so that was the first hurdle I had to go through was to get over my pride, my ego, enough to say I can't do this alone. I need help. Yeah, and uh, your your husband in this? Um... Yes, he was. Yeah. <laughs> At the time, yes. At the time, yeah. Because um, yeah. I, so I was a bit unclear in your relationship status, and I don't know if that's a sensitive topic or not. But at that point in time, he was he was there. Uh huh. He was in. We were in the same building. Okay. <laughs> and what was his response? Um, I I mean, I think he was trying to just keep things as normal as possible. 
you know, um, going to work and, you know, providing for the family, which was really important. And I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, heroic in that situation. And I had a lot of friends and they really helped me through it because they had more time and they had more energy to do it. And so they helped my children. They helped him. They helped my family. They helped us all. They helped me and they helped feed us and they helped take me to appointments and they helped me emotionally. Yeah, and you think, uh, if I may ask, what ages were your, were your kids at this time? 11 and 13. Boys. Okay. Really yeah. tough. Really, really tough. Yeah. Yeah. And one because, of my kids was in boarding school. Right. So you think about, because I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very, very interested and passionate about positive masculinity, but I, I look at how like we we still are, are kind of behind on this in, in terms of like men's emotional development. And that's like a really crucial point in, in their development, moving into these teen years, puberty transition, starting to transition from boyhood into manhood. And right. you're faced with this. Yeah. How, how did they handle that? You know, I, like I said, fear translates into anger. And so they really pushed me away because they didn't know how to respond and they, they weren't able to vocalize it. And, you know, like we teach boys in culture, you can't, cry you shouldn't or you shouldn't cry you shouldn't show emotion and these here are these boys that are probably looking at their mom going i don't know if she's gonna live or die and i don't know how to respond and so they were just they just went more inside of themselves and kind of closed themselves off and so we tried to kind of we tried to kind of break those walls and and they were just like shut down so they really struggled right it was really hard to watch them they were they were probably afraid of the pain that they were going to feel if yeah. they if they lost you right you yeah. say fear translates into anger i love that and yeah. that that's that's definitely a response right i want to shut down from feeling anything to try to protect myself from feeling the pain that i might actually feel if yeah. if my mom doesn't make it you know well and i'll give you just a, a short little story when i lost my hair my kids really wanted me to look like their mom and so i went out and got wigs that resembled what i had looked like And one day my son came home and I had a different color wig on because my mom and I went out and she's like, let me buy you a brunette wig. See, it'll be cute, whatever. She was just trying to make me happy or, you know, lighten things up, just lighten things up. And so my son, my 11 year old came home from school and he looked at me with this short brunette wig and I'd never have short hair and I'd never had brown hair. And he came over. He didn't say a word. He walked over and he grabbed the wig from my head and he threw it across the room and he left screaming and crying. Because what he walked into was, this isn't my mom. And he was so scared and he didn't know how to show it. He didn't know how to say it. And so he just erupted. Yeah. I never wore that wig again. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> you know, and, and I, like I, I was a kid that had a lot of temper tantrums um, growing up. And uh, it turns out that I'm an empath. And so I, I took on a lot of people's emotions and energies and had no mm-hmm. idea how to handle it, you know, and sure. so it would come out kind of in the form of, of, of temper tantrums, among other things. And so... Yeah. Um, in terms of, so now, now you're going through this treatment. I think you mentioned uh, 17 surgeries. Now, some of those might have been uh, connected to the colon surgery yeah. as well. And tw- when you say 28 chemotherapies, is that 28 rounds of chemotherapy? 28 rounds, yeah. And each so 15 round, months. 15 months. Because yeah. is each round like two weeks or one week? Is it like one week on, one week off? or Every week on. Every week on. And so I was in the chemo chair. Well, some days I missed it. Some weeks I missed it because my white blood count was too low. I wasn't able to get it. But it was, you know, every Tuesday or Wednesday in the chemo chair for about eight hours. And then I would go home and be sick for six days and then have to go back the next week. And it's cumulative. Yeah. So by the time I was finished with chemo, I was 
90 something pounds and I mean, no hair, no eyebrows, no eyelashes. It just say, I looked like an old, very old woman. just a, just a fraction of what I was, you know? And I, even since then, I've had so many health issues because chemo was so strong and I had an aggressive form and they really wanted to get rid of it. But it's, I have heart trouble now. I have liver stuff now. And I'm trying to, you know, get, I wake up every day and I have a smile and I'm trying to do so many things for this world, but I, I suffer. There's things that are, that have, you know, I suffer. And so, um, this might be slightly controversial, but I, you know, I think now having gone through that and being on the other side of it, you know, I, I, I'm involved in the world of sort of natural health, wellness, weight loss, that kind of thing. And, I see there's a certain narrative that exists out there on one side of the spectrum that says like, you know, chemo is, is poison and they're trying to kill you and they're just trying to make money off this and so on and so forth. But now you've been through sort of the oncology process. What was your experience with that? And would you do it again in the way that you did it looking back? I would not have done it the same way. I would have not done as many. I definitely would have done chemo because I, mm-hmm. my tumor the prescription for my tumor definitely needed certain amount of chemotherapy. Right. Yeah. And I, by, by September, I started chemo in October by September. I had started to ask my doctor, do we really need 28 rounds? Do we really need to keep going? And he was like, you can handle it. We need to keep going. And I trusted him mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. still trust him. He, he, you know, I've lived a, a long time since then. I, this will be nine years in December. Yeah. And, and I really am grateful for that. And I did have a, I was very fortunate enough. I hired a nutritionist during this time. And so she was, I met with her every week. And so we were doing nutrition every week, vitamins, supplements, and things like that, acupuncture. So I was kind of hitting it from both sides, but the majority was from traditional medicine. Mm -hmm. And you're right. You're right about big pharma. And this is where I have a big problem because, well, I have a big problem with big pharma on so many levels, but I think my chemo treatment, each one was in the $80,000 range. Now I had insurance, but it doesn't cost $80,000 for chemo treatment. You know, big pharma is getting it from our insurance companies and that's a whole big issue. Um, And so did I need 28 rounds? No, definitely not. And and going, listen, I hope I never get it back ever. But if I do, I, I won't do the kind of regimen that I had. It's too destructive. I mean, my body, yeah. I can't, I, and I only told you part of what's happened. You know, I lost three teeth. Yeah. It destroyed my mouth. You know, yeah. I have I, tons of stuff. Yeah. And, and I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Um, yeah. Because it, I, I think like I try to take a really balanced approach. I think in one, on the one hand, we're, we're pretty privileged in that we have access to some of the most advanced sure. medical care available. Yeah. But there is, there's this other side of the coin where, there's particularly in the US we see this there's a, a significant profit motive where they're marking things up exorbitantly when people's lives are at stake oh yeah and so that that's that that's kind of one of the the challenges that i that i see with how medicine in particular in the US, I, I live in canada and so we have socialized healthcare in yeah. a sense but seeing how it's practiced down there that's kind of problematic and troublesome it is yeah I speak about it publicly. <laughs> <clears throat> Good. Yeah. And, and, and it should yeah. be, you know, um, I, I run another broadcast called wellness unfiltered and, and we, it's a panel discussion with people and we try to tackle the things that the problems that we see with our current sort of medical yeah. paradigm, which is, you know, it, it, it's valuable, but 
there's so many other contributing factors that often get ignored. And I don't, I don't yes. get too sidetracked in the conversation, but I think that's a really valuable discussion to, to potentially have down the road as well. Very and much. so in terms of your journey, you're, you're going through all of this, this, you know, this destructive chemo and just getting weaker and weaker and weaker. What gets you through that? Well, I had a lot of help from my friends and, you know, they kept showing up for me. And when they showed up for me, I started to show up for myself, like, cause they believed in me. And I thought, wow, if they're giving up their time and their resources and their, you know, their own families and their own lives to care for mine and myself, they must believe in me. And so why am I not believing me in me? And so my faith in myself started to build and my faith in God and my faith in, you know, showing up for each other and cheering each other on instead of being jealous of each other, comparing like my, I had a whole paradigm shift and then I yeah. started to talk and my self-talk changed. You know, I used to tell myself, gosh, you're not worthy of asking for help. And then I would say to myself, you know, after a few months, not only are you worthy of asking for help, but you're worthy of people showing up for you. Everybody's worthy of people showing up for you. But I had to change the tape in my own head. And and that, and don't get me wrong, it took a long time. It was a process. Yeah. But but once I did, my <clears throat> self-esteem, and if you follow me on social media, you will see nothing rattles me. Nothing. Yeah. Not negative comments, not trolls on social media. Nobody rattles my self-esteem. I am unstoppable. You, you get trolls yeah. on social media. Oh, everybody. Yeah, listen, the more followers you have, the more trolls there are. Trust me. And the more and the more success that you gain, the more trolls that just flock to you. <laughs> that, that's that's a fascinating thing. I'm like, you have this incredible, inspiring story and, and wanting to like support others and uplift them and move them forward. But, you know, I, I like to say all behavior makes sense. And I don't mean that all behavior is helpful or good, but all behavior makes sense. I love that. And so when we understand how the brain works and how the psychology works, we go, okay, yeah. it makes sense. You know, there, there's a scared little person on the inside there that right. feels very insecure and has not discovered their own self-worth. And so the only way that they can perceive you is, I don't know if they see you as, you know, arrogant or, or things like that, but right. that that's how they, they perceive it because of their, their scared little person on the inside. Right. And so you got through thanks to a lot of help um, from other people. Yes. And, uh, you know, do you, do you ever feel a sense of, or is this part of what drives you to do what you do now because you want to pay it forward? It's totally what drives me. I mean, I, if they had not shown up for me, I would not be having this conversation. I would not have written my book. Listen, I mean, people look at my success now and they're like, you're a best-selling author. You're on the board of two nonprofits. Your book is becoming a film. You're a motivational speaker. You go to Harvard university, all these things. And I've done all of those post-cancer, every one of them. And after I was 45 years old, so in the last yeah. six years, <clears throat> and so when I, but when I was diagnosed with cancer, I thought my life was over. And I think the reason people love my story is they look at it and they're like, oh no, the, her life wasn't over. It just was beginning. And yeah. so you can go through all that trauma, which is what I did. And it is a choice how you deal with it. And it is a choice how you move forward. And I chose moving forward to, to be like my friends who kept showing up. I want to show up for other people. I want to cheer people on. And in and, and every way that I can, meaning in my day-to-day -day life, like walking down the street or, you know, doing interviews or, you know, on social media or by writing the book and talking about very vulnerable things or by the yeah. film. You know, there's there's so many ways, so many different platforms that we can show up for other people. It's not just one linear way. And so I've devoted my life to doing that. And I've it's very rewarding. Um, but I've seen how people's lives can be changed 
And, and that's, you know, that's the whole purpose of it. Is is there a certain freedom? So, because it's kind of interesting when you think of just the timing of life, you know, it's said like when you're 20 years old, you care what, what you know, what, what people, people think, think about you. <laughs> when you're, when you're, when you're 40, you know, you stop caring what they think. And when you hit 60, you Hopefully. realize, they right. Hopefully. And then, Hopefully. you know, when you, when you hit 60, you realize they weren't thinking about you at all. You know, I don't, all- care, I don't care at all what people think of me. And I think that intimidates some people. I don't think that people, even at 50, I don't think people are as evolved as I am. I think people mm-hmm. at 50 still care about what other people think <clears throat> of them. And I think that's a burden. I don't think, I think I would still care about what other people thought of me if I hadn't gone through what I had gone through. And then for me, that's freedom. And so there's good and bad yeah. with illness and pain, right? And I'm going to take yeah. all the good that I can from it. And part of that is just being completely un- unafraid of who I am. Is there a certain liberty that comes? Well, maybe I'll take one step back and say, was there a point in time where you kind of made peace with the fact that you might not survive this experience? Definitely. Yeah, I did. I made peace with it. And that's when I decided that not to focus so much on the outcome. Like I stopped going, oh my God, what if I die? What if I don't get to raise my kids? All that was fear. All that was worry. That wasn't adding one second to my life. And so once I got rid of that outcome, because it's not in our control. I couldn't control it. And so once I got rid of that, I was like, okay, there's some freedom in not worrying about that. I don't know if I'm going to get cancer back. And people say to me all the time, they're like, oh, well, you know, you had such an aggressive form. Are you worried about that? Because most people that are in my position would be worried about that. But I'm not mm-hmm. going to worry about that. That's a waste of my time. Yeah. You know, to, today, tomorrow is promised to no one. The only thing we yeah. have is right now. And how can I use my life right now? I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. I'm not going to worry about yesterday. I'm talking about right now. And so when people see that, they're like, wow, you really do that, don't you? And I was like, yes, because we can get so tripped up, right? In the constant yeah. fear and the constant worry about a lot of stuff, not just cancer, you know, COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but I, I must no, think no, sometimes no, no. <laughs> sometimes that you think oh, this pales in comparison to what you've been through in, in a sense. I try not to compare pain because Fair enough. Everybody, yeah. everybody's pain is relative to them. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a really good way of looking at it. So there's a certain liberty that comes with no longer worrying about what people think. And maybe there's also a certain liberty that Huge. when you when you realize that, like, you can lose everything in a moment. And so in, in one, all of this material stuff, in one sense, doesn't really matter. And so now you're free to actually be who you are. And, and you've really discovered yourself, which is really uh, incredible. And I think you would like to inspire more people to be able to do that. I would. Right. The bigger the platform, the more I can inspire. <clears throat> so that's what I'm looking for. And so you say, you don't care what people think. Now, people might hear that and, and think that's a rather callous thing to say, but I think I, I like to focus on what I call value-centered living. And so do you find yourself anchoring to – because there, there are people out there who will use that phrase, like, I don't care what people think, as a justification for behaving like a jerk, basically. Totally or different. behaving totally like a, a troll. Oh, I don't care what people think. I'm an, I'm an a-hole or whatever. You know. So yeah. when you say you don't care what people think, wh- what are you what are you striving for or striving to be and how do you, how do you connect to that? Well, I mean if you read my book or, or read my story, it's very very vulnerable. I mean I talk mm-hmm. about like obviously just down this conversation I talk about being very materialistic in my previous life and and being very controlled by beauty, right? Those aren't yeah. positive flattering things. But that's truth. And I can't just say to people now my my self-esteem is unshakable. My self-esteem was like built on sand, like I was sinking, I I sunk. And so in order for me to talk about this now, I have to be able to say, well, this is the way it was. And so 
it can come off across as some arrogance, I, I, I suppose, but it depends on how, you know, in what way you're saying it. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. say, I don't care what people think as, as a kind of insecurity, right? Right. They're trying to put up this but, shield essentially where you can't hurt me because I put up this 10 ton lead shield, but there's not really freedom in that. I think people know my heart. And mm-hmm. when I talk and I'm so authentic and I'm vulnerable and I share the good, the bad, and the ugly, I think people are like, she's the real deal. Like she doesn't yeah. care about what other people think, not in, in a form of arrogance or insecurity. She just has, she knows there's no U-Haul behind the hearse. You can't take anything with you. The only thing yeah. you can do is serve, right? But if yeah. somebody doesn't like that about me or if somebody doesn't like my vulnerability or how I share my story or what I talk about, that's not my problem. No, no, it's not. That's not my responsibility. So I, I have three, three more questions that we're going to, we're going to, because we're, we're running out of time here and I could ask you questions all day. You've got, you've got such a brilliant story and I love how articulate you are. Um, if someone has a loved one going through cancer, what would you say to that individual that's a, a support individual in terms of things not to say and how can you best support someone? Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. I know we'll get okay, the nutshell so, version. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't tell people how many friends or family members that have died of cancer that you know. We don't want to know your aunt Susie's brother's uncle who died of cancer, right? We want to hear the hopeful stories. Save yeah. those <clears throat> for somebody else. And and don't say, oh, oh, well, okay, we can go on forever about that. But I think one of the most important things that you can do for somebody is just show up. And it doesn't have to cost money. It doesn't have to yeah. be too much of your time. But to attack, sending somebody a note, writing somebody a, a letter, you know, ha- giving somebody a, a, a fresh meal. Because they're, you don't have time for that sort of stuff. You know, you're, you've got a lot of other things to worry about. And so just small gestures I think are so much more important than saying, well, I wasn't sure what to say or I wasn't sure what to do. So I did nothing. Do something. Yeah. yeah. I think I, I love that. And um, I think there's something to be said for not trying to plaster the situation with toxic positivity to cover up for your own yeah. fear of loss. And that's the other thing. I think it's so important to say to somebody, I don't know what to say, but yeah. I want you to know I'm here for you. That's yeah. it. Because sometimes there aren't words. There, there, there really aren't, aren't words. There aren't. Nobody you know? can, nobody can feel that kind of devastation. If you haven't heard you have cancer, this is your, this is how, your percentile chance of survival at 41. Or, I mean, there are people that are diagnosed with this at 20, 23, 28. It doesn't matter if you, if somebody, a doctor says to you, this is your percentile chance of survival. Your, your life changes forever. It does. So how do you escape the victim mentality? That's a choice. Yeah, that's a choice. I just don't want to be in that pity zone. It's really toxic for me. And listen, if I if I wanted to feel sorry for myself, if I wanted to ask for sympathy, and you read my full story, everybody would agree that it was okay. But I would right. go nowhere. I would be I would be paralyzed, and my life would not. I wouldn't have written a book. I wouldn't have become a speaker. I wouldn't be an influence on social media because people would go, "Why do I want to listen to her? She's just complaining." And so I'm not. I don't do that for other people. I don't get out of that victim mode for other people. I get out of the victim mode for myself. I'm not a victim. You know, things happen to me and I've moved on from them. Yeah, that's powerful. I love that. Well, Christine, 
thank you so much for being vulnerable, for being open, for sharing. You have such a beautiful, inspiring story. And I know I, I could chat with you for probably three or four more hours just asking you questions. If, if we'll you were to try, absolutely. Um, if you were to try to just, if you wanted to offer just, just some words of wisdom to close out the show here, what would, what would you like to say to people in terms of uh, trying to inspire them to move forward in the face of difficult circumstances? A couple things. If I had rooted myself more in self-esteem and done a lot of self-awareness and self-love work, I wouldn't have made the choices that I made. And those choices kind of tripped me up. So I would really do a lot of introspection and figure out who you are on, on the inside and not worry so much about the show. That's one. And the other thing that I've needed to do in my life, especially during cancer, was just surrender. Like, don't meditate on the outcome. Don't meditate on the what ifs. Just surrender. You know, if you are, if you're rooted in faith and you're rooted in like, I mean, for me, it's God, but whatever it is, you know, if it doesn't, if it's of this world, it can be taken from you. Right. But if it's something deeper than that, you'll, you'll be sustained on that. I love that. Well, thank you so much. And we'll chat again soon. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Between the Before and After. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, or leave a review because that helps this podcast to reach and inspire more people. I love exploring the stories that take place between the before and after, the powerful experiences that shape who we become, and I love human potential. I love the possibilities that lie within us. So whatever you may be up against, I hope these stories inspire you because if you're still here, your story's not done yet, so keep moving forward. Anyone can come from any place of brokenness and destitution and build an amazing life.